when Jesus was preparing his disciples that he was going to go away, you remember that he made them a promise. He said, another comforter, that is the Holy Spirit, will come and he will be with you. And basically, he will continue to speak and teach and direct and guide, even as I have when I have been these years physically present with you. It's a good thing, Jesus said, that I go. Otherwise, this comforter, the Holy Spirit, uh, would not come at that point. What we know is that the Holy Spirit is present with us today, and in a very particular way is he present with power whenever the Word of God is open before us. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and open to this God-breathed, Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God, and I'd have you turn with me in the New Testament to the second letter that Paul wrote to the young preacher, Timothy. Second Timothy. Second Timothy, and we're going to be in chapter 3 for a while, in a little while. Well, in another week, the world will be making much of hobgoblins and ghosts as the pagan tradition of Halloween is celebrated. Big bucks at Walmart and just about everywhere else, isn't it, you go these days. But I could wish that many more professing Christians would know that next Lord's Day, October 31st, marks the 493rd anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing his 95 thesis to the great doors of the University Chapel in Wittenberg, Germany. And God so ordered in that particular time in history that the slightly earlier invention of Gutenberg's printing press, also in Germany, made Luther's confession of faith and his criticisms of the Pope to be known far and wide so that October 31st in ecclesiastical or what we would call the church calendar marks the beginning of what we know as the Great Reformation. The Great World Reformation, which swept, of course, that then-known world, but I would say the results of which in our culture and in our Christianity is still taking shape and shaping our lives, whether people are very conscious of it or not. Christians, above all, should be students of history. I would hope at least God's story, his story, concerning the progress of Christianity over the centuries. 2,000 years ago, Christ Jesus, we know, came into this world. But in the years and some centuries following his death and resurrection, the true church, which he had founded, began to behave much like Israel of old, drifting far from their great foundations of truth. And Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what God has done over the many centuries now is that he has moved in remarkable ways time and again to renew his people. 
and one of the most significant periods of time, when you think about it, really it's a short period of time, just 500 years ago, God moved in history to revive his people and to bring them back to their spiritual roots, which of course were first sown by the gospel preaching of the apostles. And we have an exact record of their teaching, their doctrine. We have it in the Bible, which is the very Word of God itself. Just several years ago, I had the privilege to stand inside the Wittenberg Chapel there in Germany. I have to confess with my trembling feet planted right over Martin Luther's grave of course, where only his earthly remains wait the resurrection. But Luther, for me, at that moment, was so representative of the thousands upon thousands from his time to our present time that God raises up and uses to renew and, most importantly, to preserve the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I remember as I stood there to think someday I will shake his hand, Martin Luther. And he and I and literally countless others will be falling at the feet of Jesus. And we will say all that ever thrilled our soul was Jesus. And for many of them, he was more than life itself. The great historic reformation continues, I say, to be one of the best of the gifts to the church out of the storehouse of our Father's wondrous preserving grace. In Martin Luther's day, those were trembling, tumultuous, turbulent times. Biblical truth was by then little known by the average man or woman, boy or girl. And hard to believe, perhaps, but the message of the gospel itself had almost been totally obliterated. So it can happen, is what I'm saying. And every generation, I think, needs to be asking the question that I will ask on our behalf this very morning. How fares the church now? How fares the church 500 years later? For as it was in Luther's day, there was a whole lot going on that passed for the only Christianity that people knew. And when you study those issues, and I've been somewhat of a student of that history you'll discover that those issues that Luther was called upon of God to deal with, Luther and others, are now all too parallel to battles we face with the religious powers and influence of this day. In my own lifetime, even the once revered term evangelical has become something increasingly hard to define. And at times, it's just plain embarrassing since 
the word now means so much more than simply evangelizing with the gospel of grace. So much more now falls under that rubric of evangelical. I have sometimes lamented that its theology under that tag ends up being, well, maybe five miles wide, but only about an inch deep. And it's getting more shallow, it seems, every generation. Well, beloved, I don't want the people who worship at Good Shepherd Church floundering around in a five-mile-wide sea of confusion, especially in these trembling times. God's people need to be reminded that we have more than an inch of truth to hold on to. We do, in our day, need a modern reformation. And I'm grateful that we do not stand alone in that conviction. I get out and about sometimes with associates in ministry and leaders in ministry. And I do want to tell you, there are encouraging signs here and there that God may indeed be raising up a new generation who finally are a whole lot less enamored with the new and exciting stuff called church. And they are more and more finding their joy and substance in the old and the proven and the unchanging tenets of a biblical Christianity. I'm talking about the faith of our fathers, of the prophets, and of the apostles. And in the course of 2,000 years of church history, let me tell you what is a fact. Any time the church of Jesus Christ has been revived and begun to make a real difference, it's because they went back to something old and weren't enamored to experiment with something new and improved like so much laundry soap. I think if I knew I had but five more sermons to preach, that would be a privilege. If I had but five more sermons to preach before the Lord would call me home, it might be these next five messages that I intend to preach. I will, Lord willing, purpose to preach some rock-solid truth that really is the foundation, the building blocks upon which Christ continues to build his church. Each of the five subjects are statements of biblical truth upon which Christ will maintain his people, as he promised, until he comes again. As mentioned earlier, in the course of church history, there have been whole centuries of time when these five essential pillars of truth seemed forgotten and all but forsaken. And it was 500 years ago that that great reformation 
fire was ignited and the world was changed. And what is our responsibility? It is for us in our time that we should fan the flames to restate and revitalize the same teachings of biblical truth emphasized by the reformers, which was no different a truth than what the apostles delivered once and for all to the church of Jesus Christ. Luther found it necessary in those 95 theses to say something as basic as this. Thesis number 62, quote, The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. Now, that still being true, why is it in our day that a significantly large number of professing Christians cannot articulate the gospel rightly to their own family, neighbors, and friends? Christians professing believers when asked the question, how would you define the gospel, give wide and varied answers, and we're learning that the majority of responses are still too far from the glory of the gospel delivered to us by Christ himself in the New Testament. Luther gave us thesis number 94, the next to the last statement, and I'll quote, Christians should be exhorted to be diligent in following Christ, their head, through penalties, death, and hell. That's still being true. Why is it in our day so few professing Christians are bold enough to stand for Christ in the public square? My goodness, when the most that we face in America are the false accusations of a misinformed and an ignorant populist media, we're afraid we might be called a name. I want us to review at least five of the basic cries of the Reformation and remind ourselves that we stand or fall in our stewardship of the gospel. That those whose blood was spilled in the streets or whose bodies were burned at the stake in order to bring us back to the essential truths of the gospel, that they may not have died in vain. In the ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical Latin of Luther's day, we're going to have a Latin lesson today. The Reformers gave the Church of Jesus Christ what has been called the five solaces. Now, you all know what a solo is. Someone sings alone, and that's literally what is behind this Latin for solo or sola. The five statements of foundational truth that must be maintained and, I believe, reinvigorated in each generation. 
These are not mere statements of doctrine now to be tucked away in a dusty church constitution, although I'm glad we have that. But these five things that I will give you are essential truths which are meant to shape and govern everything we do as a church and everything that touches our lives individually every day of the week. Some of you might be helped to jot these down. You'll know what sermons are coming over the next few weeks. The five solaces were these. I'm going to give you the Latin word, and then we'll look at its English equivalent, of course. Number one in that list of five things, there is sola scriptura, being translated, really, scripture alone. The Bible and the statement of faith that says the Bible, the Bible alone, Scripture alone, is the ultimate and must be the absolute authority for all of our life and all of our practice and all that we do as a people of God every day of our lives. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Then secondly, and we'll look at this in more detail next Lord's Day, there is solus Christus. By now, you're probably pretty good interpreters of the Latin. You can figure it out. Solus Christus, Christ alone. That Christ is the only Savior of sinners, and on Him alone... You must depend for the forgiveness of sins, salvation itself. One preacher friend of mine over on the east coast of Florida puts it this way so succinctly. He wrote, Christ plus nothing equals everything. I like that. Christ plus nothing equals everything. Everything. Solus Christus. Thirdly, of the five, there is sola gratia. You figure it out? Gratia, gratitude, uh, grace. Grace alone, sola gratia. That is that the only means by which Christ saves the sinners is this, and I quote scripture, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his, say it, by his grace are we saved. Sola gratia. Fourthly, sola fide. No, it's not fido. (laughs) Sola fide. Faith alone. That it is Faith alone by which God freely justifies the sinner. Listen to scripture. By grace are ye saved through, say it. By grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, but as a gift from God. And then finally, since I said there were five, the fifth one's a phrase. And it kind of wraps it all up. In this phrase, all that's already been said, 
soli deo gloria. Soli deo gloria. That is glory to God alone. That this is a salvation you and I can depend on because God saves the sinner for no other reason than his own glory. You can be thankful it's that way. What if he had saved you for something in yourself and then you changed? But salvation is solely Deo, Gloria, for the glory of God alone. That is to say, since there is nothing in me that warrants salvation, I can especially depend on it because he alone has designed redemption's plan to be not dependent on me or my performance, but accomplished in such a way that he alone will and must be praised. If you can't wait for the fifth message, just go home today and read Ephesians 1. If you've ever asked the question, why did the Lord save me? Ephesians 1 answers five times over, so that you, sinner, would be to the praise of the honor and the glory of his grace, that God's name would be magnified. And this is nothing new. This goes all the way back to the prophets of old. Isaiah 43 and verse 25. Listen to what God said. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. Why, Lord? Listen to the rest of the verse. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake, God says. And because of that, I will not remember thy sins. This is glorious truth. We cannot afford to let it fade from the front burners of our souls. Scripture alone. Christ alone. Grace alone. Faith alone. For God's glory alone. On these things and only on these things can you and I depend. And that's why I've entitled the series, This is Rock Solid Truth for Trembling Times. Now, in the time that remains today, we can only scratch the surface of all five of these great doctrines, but I want to take some moments to increase your joy, refresh it at least, over the great gift we have in this miracle of books, the Bible. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Let me say then in a brief way, I wish we could do a whole series on the Bible and we will someday. Having you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to discover four things out of the text that we will read together in this moment. We're going to learn that the scripture has these unchanging characteristics. Number one, it is authoritative. Number two, it is is necessary. I think that may be number three. Number two, it is clear. Number three, it is necessary. And number four, it is sufficient. And of course, we're not getting this from Martin Luther or any other great hero of the Christian faith. These are teachings that come from the Bible itself. That is, we're looking for a moment now at what the Bible has to say about itself. And it says it is 
a word of authority. It is clear, it is necessary, and it is sufficient. And I think you'll see that. What we're going to do is look a little more closely in a moment at verses 13 through 17. We will read those together in 2 Timothy 3. The focus is verses verses 13 through 17, but we really would do well to have the context. So I want to read the first five verses of 2 Timothy 3 and then jump down quickly with me after the fifth verse to the 13th verse. The apostle writes and says, realize this. By the way, what I'm about to read here sounds like headline news, right? Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, outward religiosity, people going to churches on Sunday, although they have denied its power, avoid such as these. Well, what are we going to do? With a last day's picture like that, what we must do, we must hold to sola scriptura. It's exactly what Paul says Timothy must do as those last days came upon that generation and continues to ours. Look at now verse 13 and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. My goodness, if there's, almost, if there's all that deception going on, what could possibly be an answer to it except having truth, right? You, however, verse 14, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation itself through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, that is, teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God, the people of God, may be adequate, may I say, adequate for such last days of darkness and deception. In fact, this same word will equip us in each generation he says, for every good work. Now, literally in the moments that remain, let's take these several verses apart under those titles that I gave you. We're looking at sola scriptura. It is an authoritative word. It is clear. It is necessary. And it is 
sufficient. What we have just read against that backdrop of headline news, all of it bad, what we have read is some very good news for people in our day and every generation. This is rock-solid truth you and I can plant our feet upon in the shifting sands of an ever-increasing godliness, godlessness. Rock-solid truth for trembling, turbulent times. Verse 13 again, evil men and imposters will proceed. There's a word that means progress. Do I need to convince you that evil is making progress? And it'll go from bad because ever since Adam and Eve's disobedience, it was never good. But it will go from bad to worse. And the hallmark of the day will be deception, lies, deceit everywhere. And as I said just a moment ago, what are we to do? Who are we to believe? What can we know in our day is absolutely true about anything? The answer is sola scriptura, and Luther knew it. The Bible. What you learned in Sunday school, some of you, adults, would now do well to sing it a few times. B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. There's so much more at stake in those words than words the children used to sing. Verse 16. All of the scripture is inspired by God. And so in our statements of truth, we affirm here at Good Shepherd Church that the Bible alone is authoritative. We do so when we say that on the ground that it comes from the supreme authority, the supreme one. The Bible, we are told in this text, is literally God-breathed. Most of your translations using the word inspired, the Greek word theonoustros, may better be translated more literally. And I love this. All scripture, think of it this way, is God exhaling. That is, God is speaking. The old fundamentalists, of which I am still one, and sometimes I'm thinking some of us maybe better take that banner than evangelical, which brings so much confusion today. The fundamentalists like to say, and I grew up with some of these uh, cliches, God said it. I believe it. You know what they said then? That settles it for me. But to make a point, and as much as I think that phrase is true experientially, to say God said it, I believe it, that settles it for me, is not really the best way to more literally represent the doctrine of Scripture. We can shorten the mantra to simply say God said it, That settles it. 
So shut up. God said it, so whether or not I believe it is of little consequence. God said it, and if men and women, boys and girls, in a whole generation, in the great majority, reject this book, what difference does it make? It doesn't change one thing. God said it. Someone comes to me, and in more than 30 years of ministry, oh, do they come to me? (laughs) And I will hear things like this. I don't like what you said. I didn't much care for that sermon. I know what you're teaching. And I don't like it. More frequently, I get this one. It's usually when I'm going through Paul's great epistle to the Romans and other places. They'll say, I don't like what you preach about the sovereignty of God's grace and salvation toward his elect people. And I've learned over the years to be a little more charitable than I used to be. I will charitably suggest after I listen to their complaint and what it is they don't like about what has been preached or taught. And I will ask, and your disagreement or your unbelief Changes what? Does it change what God has said through Paul in Romans 9, for example? Uh, And then I invite them, let's do a Bible study together. So that your issue is not with me, the preacher or the teacher, but rather wrestle with what God has actually said. I've learned quickly to say, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? I usually get a yes on that. Then let's see what it actually says. Now, that's not to say that all the positions I take on any particular text or theme is always correct. That's why teachers and preachers will be judged more harshly, the scripture says. They ought to be careful. You know, another of the great reformers was a man by the name of John John Knox. In his doctrinal statement in the Scots Confession of 1515... He wrote this as a conclusion. He he wrote a statement of beliefs, and then at the end, he put these words. If anyone can show us out of God's most holy word that we have erred, we beg of him, show us. And we will either convince him from God's word or we will alter the statement of our confession. I've wanted to make that all these years a model for my own preaching and teaching. Take issue. Argue with me. Question something you hear. And together, let's go to the Bible. See what God has actually said. Does this sound fair enough? So get off my back. That's but one example of how the supremacy and the authority of God's word will overrule a Knox. It will overrule a Luther. It will overrule a Calvin or a Wesley. It will overrule a Spurgeon or even a puny Sharp. Well, not too puny. Secondly, it is not only authoritative. God said it. That settles it. The Word of God 
is not a mystery or a book that needs to be decoded. I want to speak to you about what the theologians call the perspicuity. I can hardly pronounce it of Scripture. That is that it's clear. Look what Paul said as he reminded Timothy in verse 14. From childhood, from your, from your primary Sunday school class, from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. What could be more important? The Bible's not a mystery book that needs to be decoded. And listen, while we are grateful, we do not need master theologians to somehow open its secrets to us. For a little boy like Timothy who had a believing mother and grandma, that was all that was necessary for knowing the most important thing the Bible reveals, and that is the way of redemption through faith in Christ. Sometimes when I am teaching on the nature of Scripture in classes, I will say something like this, and I've borrowed it from those lectures. You know... In this modern day and age, and I suppose there could be some teens or younger children around, you don't have to know what a millstone is, do you? To read the Bible and sort of get the idea that whatever a millstone is, you certainly don't want it tied around your neck if you're taking a dip in the ocean. So when Jesus says anyone causes the little ones to stumble, it would be better for such a deceiver to have a millstone hung around his neck and to be cast into the depths of the sea. I would suggest that our young people take a dictionary and look up and see a picture of what a millstone is. That would be fine. But you don't have to know what that is to know that Scripture is clearly saying you don't want to mess with truth. You don't want to twist it. You don't want to get it wrong cause others to stumble. So rejoice, saints, this morning that the scriptures are not only authoritative, but they're clear. Oh, there's a few passages here and there, and and we can discuss them at length and still agree to disagree on some minor points. But all you need to know, and especially for salvation, a little boy by the name of Timothy at his grandmother's knee came to faith in Christ. It's clear. Thirdly, the necessity of Scripture. I take that again from Timothy's experience. Verse 15, those Scriptures were able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith. The Bible, either read or heard, is the only means that God has ordained for the saving of souls. That's why Paul could say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Even though they are words, they are the power of God unto salvation. Just within this last week, since last Lord's Day, when we gathered here, several came to faith in Christ. And already I've had the feedback that there's a wonder-working power in the gospel. Change becomes something almost immediate. Are you rejoicing in that church? I am. The Bible teaches there are some things you can know about God without the Bible. There are 
is teaching in the Bible that says there are some things you can know about God apart from the Bible, such as the heavens declare his glory, his Godhead and power. The Bible even teaches that man has a certain witness within himself that there is a God. But none of those things can lead to salvation. In fact, the Bible teaches that all such outward and inward witnesses to the Godhead, we in fact, in our sinfulness, suppress the truth as sinners and remain bound in our spiritual darkness and rebellion. No, the Bible says that it is by faith that comes hearing and hearing by what, folks? The Word of God. You see, you can gaze into the stars. You can behold the wonders of creation. You can contemplate your belly button. But it takes the Scriptures to say, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And finally, under the heading of Sola Scriptura, just this week, I want to mention, of course, the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. Is the Bible sufficient? Is it enough? I want to tell you, beloved, when I started out in ministry more than 30 years ago, there was a battle raging. And would you believe, if some of you don't remember, it was a battle over whether or not we could even trust the Bible. Many who were saying, oh, the Bible is so full of errors and mistakes, it really needs to be uh, interpreted as something other than directly coming from God because God wouldn't make errors and there's plenty of errors in the Bible. I have to tell you that way back then as the battle raged, providentially, that is by God's working, that battle was actually won for my generation. I was just a young man involved with that battle. But there's a new issue today. There's always a new issue, always a new attack to be made upon the sacred scriptures. The issue in our day, and this has been the case for some time now, is not whether or not the Bible's full of errors. The doctrine of inerrancy was established at the beginning of my ministry, and I'm so thankful for those who fought the battle. The battle now is whether the Bible is sufficient. The sufficiency of Scripture. So can the modern Christian, and that's what we just love to think of ourselves as, more Modern, of course, far more sophisticated than those primitive people who first believed in Christ so long ago. Surely we live in a different day and age, and we can't begin to suggest that with all our increase in knowledge and all the sciences put together that that the Bible's enough. Can the modern Christian get by with solo scriptura? the Bible alone, or does he or she need to look elsewhere for help, direction, guidance in life? Listen to what some of those faithful pastors said when this battle began to rage just 11 years or so ago, back in, in, uh, well, 96. And they put forth a statement called the Cambridge Declaration. I was privileged to sign off on that. Here's what they said in one of the paragraphs. Scripture alone is the inerrant rule of the church's life. But the evangelical church today 
has separated Scripture from its authoritative function. In practice, the church is guided far too often by the culture, by therapeutic techniques, by marketing strategies, and the beat of the entertainment world. I walk into modern sanctuaries today, and I get the sense that I'm not in a church, but I'm in a theater with all the colored lights and the flashy pictures. We were very careful what we did when we renewed this sanctuary. You know what I've appreciated most of you saying? You've said what we hoped you'd say. It is a beautiful thing as given to the Lord. But you know what I like, Pastor? It's simple, it's plain, and it doesn't distract us from what we're here to do. And we're not here to turn the spotlight on anyone, any singer, any preacher. Well, you get the message. I have to close, don't I? They all said, wow, it means I can go on. I have to close this sermon today, don't I? And, and they all said, I feel young. Can I say four things and I'll pray and we'll go. Here I think are some rather intense and practical points of application if Luther was right, and he was, sola scriptura. Number one, listen to these. If God's word is authoritative, then to disbelieve or disobey any part of it is sin. I hope you know that so you know what to confess. I hope you know that with me so you know how to repent. We do not obey perfectly this revealed will of God, which is the Bible, and it is God speaking authoritatively. Therefore, any given day with any verse of Scripture, I am either in compliance with the ultimate authority, I have obeyed it, or I have disobeyed it, and I need to confess and ask for help. Number two, if it is clear and we said that it is, guess what? We have no excuse for not doing the will of God. Oh, I want to know the will of God for my life. Read your Bible. And it's clear. We have no excuse for not doing the will of God. Number three, if it is necessary, and we said it is for salvation, then God forbid that we do not share it with others and the world. There's an awful lot that's passing for the word gospel today that has very little to do with sinners being under the wrath of God with only the blood of Christ as their only hope. And if you're preaching anything else to somebody else and you think it's the gospel and you're just saying, come to Jesus and he'll make life all beautiful and good and deal with your problems and make you successful and you get the pink Cadillac or whatever the case may be, that's not the gospel. We need a modern reformation. Four, and I do close, if it is sufficient, this Bible, then I want to suggest with the strongest words I could find. If the word of God is everything necessary we need for life and godliness, then I tell you, we insult the Almighty by turning to the wisdom of the world to try to solve our problems. 
And when we do that, we just compound the problems. And for many, there's no cure apart from coming back to the truth, the sola scriptura, the Bible alone, because God has the last word about everything. Stand together with me, would you please? I have gone over time, and I think I'll save this great hymn that tells us that we have a firm foundation for another Lord's Day in this series. We will dismiss you in a moment with the benediction instead. But I love the first line in that hymn, which says, What more can he say? What more can God say than to us he has already said in his word? The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the joy of believers. Its doctrine is holy, its precepts are binding, its history is true, and its decisions are immutable. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. It is there that heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is the grand subject, our good, its design, and the glory of God, its end. Sola Scriptura, Soli Deo Gloria, the Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And all God's people said, Amen.